welcome back to The Rights Pod. In today's episode, I had the honor of sitting down with Melissa Diamond to talk about her organization, A Global Voice for Autism, and challenges humanitarian organizations face in providing vulnerable communities with ethical and human-centered assistance. We also discussed her forthcoming book, The Space Between You and Me, and how she hopes to humanize refugees and their stories. You're listening to The Rights Pod. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much again for tuning in to The Rights Pod. My name is Kira Jasper, and I'm a student at Stanford studying history and the law and minoring in human rights. I'm honored today to be joined by Melissa Diamond. She is a social entrepreneur with a deep commitment to supporting refugees and individuals in conflict-affected contexts. She is the founder of A Global Voice for Autism, a nonprofit organization that equips conflict-affected communities to support children with autism and developmental disabilities in their classrooms, homes, and communities, and has worked on refugee issues at numerous organizations, including the International Organization for Migration and the Melissa Network in Athens, Greece. She was recently recognized by UNICEF, IOM, and UNMGCY's Youth Leadership Initiative Award for leveraging technologies to support migrants. Her first novel, The Space Between You and Me, which tells the stories of two Syrian families' journeys during the war, is set for publication in August 2021. Thank you so much again, Melissa, for joining me on this episode of The Rights Pod. Yes, thank you, Kira. Thank you so much for having me here today. Of course. So I know that you do a lot of different activities, um, but we first met actually a few years ago because you were the founder of A Global Voice for Autism, um, which is an incredible organization working on autism in the Middle East. So for listeners that aren't familiar with the work that you do, can you tell us just a little more about what the organization is um, and how you founded it and how you um, were interested in, in even starting this initiative? So as you mentioned, uh, a Global Voice for Autism works on building the capacities of conflict-affected communities as well as refugee communities to support children on the autism spectrum and developmental disabilities. I actually started the organization more or less by accident um, after I met a family in the Middle East who locked their daughter with autism in their home due to the stigma and lack of resources in their community. Um, And as as somebody who has a very close friend on the autism spectrum, who I'm actually her legal guardian now, uh, it really struck me that if my friend had simply been born somewhere else, she might be locked in a home instead of swimming in the Special Olympics, going to school, spending time with friends and doing everything she's able to do today in her community. That experience first led me to try and support this family in getting services internationally. Um, But eventually through that process, it occurred to me that if this family was locking their daughter in their home due to the stigma and lack of resources, there were likely many other families doing the same. And that was the catalyst moment for Global Voice for Autism. Through getting to know this family and developing a better understanding of their needs, their context, and their community, I worked together with them to figure out a program that would truly meet their needs and the needs of other families in their community. And eventually we grew from there to launch our first program, which trained 16 mothers to support their children with autism, while also educating over 500 kindergarten teachers and social workers. Um, This was in the Janine municipality in the West Bank um, on how to support children on the autism spectrum in schools um, and at home and in the community. Um, And has since grown to an organization that has served over 15,000 individuals worldwide. 
That is incredible. Um, just the scale. And also I know the personal stories of people that have been touched by your program and how important um, that your program has been in, in improving their lives. Can you tell me a bit more about what the approach of Global Voice is, both in terms of where you work um, and then also the type of mentality you, you have when you are developing these programs? Definitely. So I think one of the things that makes a Global Voice for Autism very unique is that we never impose our services on a community. Instead, we respond to invitations from local communities that are looking for services, looking for capacity building. Um, sometimes these come from a group of parents um, who themselves have children with autism and developmental disabilities. Other times the invitation might come from a community center or a local organization that's already been working to address this issue. And then we work closely with our local community partners to develop a program that specifically meets that community's needs. And so while we do have some programs such as advocacy training, um, direct capacity building, uh, education and awareness raising, community inclusion programming um, that are standard for a Global Voice for Autism, our programs themselves look very different from community to community. Um, we have 13 programs across seven countries. Um, and in those programs, um, they each look slightly different based on the needs of that community. And so for example, um, when we worked in Ramallah, we had a group of families that was at a point where they were more or less ready to get started um, with the training. Um, their children were either diagnosed or had symptoms that led them to conclude that their child might be on the autism spectrum and they were ready to come to our program. Um, in Harta, in the north of Jordan, the situation was quite different. Um, and we found that due to the high levels of stigma in the community, while 30 families got in touch with us to indicate that they wanted to participate in the program, only eight showed up on the first day. Um, and as we dug into this further, we found out that families were afraid of walking down the street with their child to arrive at our center, which was on a main street in the community, and they feared that other people would see them. And so in that community, we had to approach things a little bit differently. Um, we dove into awareness raising programming, focused on creating community events that simultaneously brought people with and without disabilities together, while also educating the community about what autism was, um, what disability is, and what it means, um, and slowly, slowly chipping away at that stigma in order to create an environment where more families felt comfortable coming to the program. And little by little, as we were able to do that, we were able to grow and expand the direct training components for families. Um, we also had a direct training program for teachers. Um, and so the teachers were able to communicate that information to their students to start to address the stigma. Um, but those programs ended up looking very different, um, although they were modeled on similar types of services because the community's needs were different. Um, and that's something that we always emphasize in our programs. Yeah, that's incredible. I'm curious, because you work in so many different countries, if there's been any similarities in the types of issues that you faced in, in doing this type of work, um, or if you can sort of describe an example of where there's a, a stark difference or challenge um, that's unique to one particular community versus another in the Middle East. Sure. So um, two things stand out to me in terms of similarities. Um, the first of which is disability stigma. Um, in every community where we've worked, stigma is a significant factor and barrier for families to accessing services, whether they're disability services or otherwise. 
Um, we run into families who can't leave their homes, for example, to access a humanitarian food distribution because they're a single parent household, they have a child on the autism spectrum, and they don't want anyone to know that they have a child on the autism spectrum. So they skip the food distribution, even if they're experiencing food insecurity, because they have no way to actually get there, collect the food and come back while also caring for their child. Um, and this, while it manifests differently in every community we serve, um, that stigma remains a primary barrier. Um, the second thing is that the system around us is often ill-equipped to meet the diverse needs of our families. Um, a family with a child on the autism spectrum is rarely facing that as their single challenge. Um, having to uh, raise a child on the autism spectrum in a community where that child can't access public education services, for example, can't go to school, where a family is, where they're li maybe living as refugees, all of these things intersect. They make it hard for the parents to go out and earn money to support the family. They may make it difficult, as I mentioned previously, to benefit from humanitarian support and distributions and other programs. And all of these intersections mean that our families have a wide variety of needs. They don't just come to us with a child with autism. They come to us experiencing food insecurity. They come to us, um, many as survivors of domestic violence, as individuals who may fear for their safety due to documentation issues or issues that followed them from their home country. Um, and when we work to refer and connect them to other resources within the ecosystem because these are not areas that we are equipped to address as an organization. Um, we often find gaps and we often find scenarios that limit how much families can benefit from those other resources due to those challenges that are a broader issue in the humanitarian system. That's a really good segue into discussing what these greater challenges are within the development world. Um, so based on the experiences that um, you've had working within the humanitarian sector, although in a very specific part, what are the, the bigger challenges that you see this ecosystem facing? Um, and what do you think has been discussed but not adequately addressed or not even discussed at all? So the first thing, which I know is increasingly being discussed, but I would say still needs more discussion, is that I often see humanitarian programs that are donor-driven rather than community-driven, meaning that the needs they respond to are those that have, and typically an international donor um, has outlined and identified that fall within their priority areas. Um, and so often these priorities misalign with the actual needs of the community, um, or even if on the surface, the priorities align with the needs of the community, the methods for execution that are outlined by the donor may not correspond to the actual needs and realities within the community. Um, and I think I have seen this as a huge issue time and time again, where programs are provided that can then go back and report metrics to donors, but may not actually meet the underlying needs within the community and the true problems may persist. The second thing is that legal frameworks often get in the way of getting individuals the support they need. And I have a story about this from a Global Voice for Autism that is probably one of those that has impacted me the most during my time doing this work. Um, at one of our program sites, we had a family where the mother was experiencing severe, severe domestic violence. And she reported this and went to search for services in the community. We found a program in the community that 
uh, said that they would serve all individuals, refugees, locals, um, anybody who was there, regardless of where they were from. Um, and however, when this when this woman went to that organization to attempt to access services, she found out that because her residency permit hadn't been paid in the municipality where she was living, um, she had two choices. The first choice was that she could leave without telling them her name, giving them any information or taking a step forward to address the domestic violence issues. And the second was that she could get deported to her home country because she hadn't paid her residency permit and was not legally allowed to be in this area for that reason. Um, the cost of the residency permit was also exorbitant and not something that the family could afford to pay given their situation as refugees in this community. While the mother ended up taking the first option, leaving without giving her name, going home, and within the next week, she was killed by her husband in a domestic violence incident. And that, that is a story that always sticks with me. And that's, that's the most severe manifestation, but far from the only manifestation of that that I've seen, where legal frameworks and who is, who is registered, who is documented, who has the financial resources to pay for certain types of status and citizenship gets in the way of saving people's lives because they can't afford to get that documentation in order to get those services that they need. And rather than having life as a prerequisite to being able to register and get those services, it's the opposite. And if you're not registered, you can't access those life-saving services. Um, and that's something that I would like to call on the entire international humanitarian community to address and to address immediately. Um, because that story happened about five years ago and things still haven't gotten better. Um, we see situations like that both within our populations and within populations for part of partner organizations every day. Um, and that still remains a huge problem within the system. Yeah, that is, that is shocking. Um, and, but I think also as you addressed, it's, it's shocking and it's also something that is still not nothing is being done about. Um, and I kind of want to ask you both regarding the first challenge that you identified of a lot of projects being crafted based on donor needs. And this second issue of the legal system posing as an impediment to progress um, and giving and delivering justice to people that needed, not even justice, but, but help and, and support. What do you think can be done in order to address some of these issues um, both. Yeah, and I know that both issues are very unique and different and require different solutions, but just can you talk us through some of the ideas maybe that you have or that you've seen tossed around or not discussed um, in regard to those challenges? Sure, so the first thing that I would like to see is for international systems, governments, humanitarian organizations, uh, private organizations, everyone in communities that host refugees or any individuals who may have different types of documentation to come together and come to an agreement that life comes first and that an individual's personal safety and survival um, is something that should be put above documentation every time. Um, and I think that's something really important because when it comes to life-saving services, you can always figure out documentation later. Uh, you cannot figure out how to save someone's life after it's too late. And so that's that's the first thing and really having a conversation around how we can put people's safety as the top priority um, and 
regardless of documentation status. The second thing is I think donors, humanitarian organizations, all of us need to reconsider the meaning of this term vulnerability. Um, vulnerability is often used as a category to determine how worthy an individual is of humanitarian aid. Um, vulnerability may be because of an individual's gender, it may be because of socioeconomic status, um, disability status, a variety of other things. But oftentimes what happens with these vulnerability metrics is that they fail to capture many actual types of vulnerability. And as a result, end up pushing people into unprecedented levels of vulnerability due to these arbitrary cutoffs. For example, um, in one of the communities where I was working, there uh, a large international organization um, reached out to a bunch of families one day for whom they were providing cash assistance of around $100 a month, which for those families, many of them, that was the difference between having food or not. And they reached out with a text message, I still have it here saved on my phone, that said, we're here to inform you that you're no longer considered vulnerable enough to receive our services and our, your, your payments will end on the 31st of the coming month. And for so many of those families, that pushed them into a situation where they could no longer afford to find food. The families that ended up getting cut off were by and large two-parent households where it was determined that because of their two-parent household status, they could have at least one parent who would be able to go out and work. Um, and while most of these families who were in our program and experiencing this did have a parent who was going out and working, um, due, to, due to their status as refugees, those parents weren't able to earn a living wage or even a minimum wage in those countries. Uh, many of them couldn't get work permits and so were working informally um, and losing that $100 led many of these families within the program and within the village where we were working more broadly to make the decision to go back to Syria because they could no longer afford to live in the community where they were living. Um, and that's, that's just one example. Um, when I was working in Greece, uh, there were organizations that were providing housing, uh, but the housing was specifically for minors and women with children. And so there was a woman who I knew, she was 19 years old, she was on her own, and they turned her down for housing time and time again because she wasn't vulnerable enough. Um, if she had been 17 years old, she would have been vulnerable enough. If she had had a child, she would have been vulnerable enough. But because she was a single 19 year old woman, they determined that she wasn't in one of those primary categories of vulnerability and she was left on the street unless she could find another option. Yeah, that is absolutely horrifying. But I think, but you obviously bring up a lot of important responsibilities that both humanitarian organizations have to play and also in ensuring that the governments are conscious of, of what impact that these that these services are providing and the these lack of adequate metrics are also providing. Um, I know you that you've spent a lot of time in the Middle East, and I'm curious how your experience living there influenced the work that you did. Um, if it if you felt like being in country gave you a different perspective, um, and also how you were able to find these community partners to work with, given the sensitivity of the issues that that you that your organization addresses. So um, in terms of living in the region and what I've learned and how that's influenced the work, 
Um, the only thing that I learn every day is how little I know. Um, and the more time that I spend in communities, working with communities, um, engaging with the populations we serve, uh, the more I learn how much there still is to learn. Um, and that really only emphasizes the importance of working closely with community partners and allowing them to lead the work. And where I see my role, I see a Global Voice for Autism's role as an ally and as an organization that's fortunate to have access to international technicians, um, technical specialists, uh, funders in a way that many of these local communities don't. Um, our role is not to tell communities how to live their lives. Our role is not to tell communities what's best for them. It's to follow their lead and provide support where we can in order to move things forward. Um, and in terms of your question as to how we find the partner organizations, um, that's really been quite an organic process. Um, I've had the privilege of speaking twice at the United Nations about the work that we've done in a Global Voice for Autism and both the needs that continue to exist as well as how it's influenced some of these families' lives. And from those speeches in particular, um, we've gotten a lot of outreach from international communities who have requested our programs, um, whether those are wow. local community networks of parents on, of children on the autism spectrum or whether those are local community organizations. Um, and Ah, that has been that has been a major funnel for requests for our services. And once we receive a request, we work with the community to evaluate that request. Um, we look into whether that community meets our definition of a conflict affected community. Um, we also look into whether our capacity and the services that we're able to provide respond to what the community's true needs are. Um, and we're very careful about that. We don't want to take on something that we can't adequately address or where we can't make the difference the community is looking to have us make. And from there, we work closely with the community. Um, we bring on our local coordinator, our local team, our community coordinators, um, and work with the community to develop a roadmap and better understanding of what they need and what their goals are for the program. Um, when we bring in international technicians, we make it very clear to them that while they may have the technical expertise, our local team are the experts in the local context, and that is what is most important when working in those communities. Um, and we make sure that everyone we bring on board is in agreement about that relationship and has an understanding of where they fall and where their services fall in the process of service delivery. Um, and I think that's something that's really important when doing this work because the reason we are going to these communities is because that technical knowledge does not exist there. If it, if it does, we don't accept the request from the community. Instead, we refer them to local resources with technical expertise. Uh, but when we're going to a community to bring this technical expertise and build the capacity, we want to make sure that our local team is doing just that and not trying to push for their own agenda or do anything else that extends beyond what the community themselves want and are looking for. Yeah, that's really important. I'm curious as well, now that the global pandemic has put a freeze on travel, how your services um, and your organization has continued to do the work that you're doing um, despite the challenges of the pandemic. Yeah, so uh, a Global Voice for Autism took a big pivot during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, we were fortunate in two ways. 
Um, the first is that we already provided virtual support services to families who have previously accessed our programs. And so we have a network and we have a history of doing so. And the second is that we've managed to build this very strong international community that trusts us and that stays in touch with us and with each other, whether there's a global pandemic or not. And so when this pandemic started, we were able to mobilize fairly quickly to conduct a needs assessment of our families and understand what their top priorities were during this time, um, where they were experiencing challenges. Um, and what we found just as a quick overview um, was that 40% of our families were experiencing food insecurity. Um, nearly 40% had experienced an incident of domestic violence since the start of the quarantine period, um, compared to 17% in the six months beforehand. And in addition to all of these challenges, all of our families highlighted among their top three needs that they needed additional support for their children's education during this time. Maybe because their school or center or other services where they accessed resources were no longer open, and maybe because they never had those services to begin with. Um, and so using this information, we, we took action. We employed teachers who have been trained by a Global Voice for Autism in our inclusive education training programs and brought them on board, many of whom were, all of whom are refugees themselves, many of whom had lost their jobs during the COVID-19 pandemic, to create video content to train families through three to five minute videos in how to work with their children on different skills. Um, we then worked with a volunteer team to build a mobile application that could house these videos and provide this content that was not only, not only in the language that the families spoke, but also culturally relevant and designed by others from their communities. Um, we ramped up our one-on-one -on -one support sessions offering virtual consulting services where families will be assigned a coach and can meet with them to work on certain behaviors, whether that's a self-injurious behavior, like we have a child who started biting his wrist and to the degree that it was leaving bruises during the pandemic because he got really upset and he couldn't go outside. Um, we had families who wanted to work with their kids on more skills for independence because the pandemic meant that they had to be outside the home more and they wanted to teach their children to do some things in the home to help them out um, and all sorts of other needs. Um, and then finally, we had, uh, we offered in-kind support to our families. We recognized that if a family is experiencing food insecurity, they're probably not going to be able to focus very well on a video on teaching their child how to perform a new skill. Um, and so as a result, um, we had an emergency support fund that families could apply for. Um, and then we would evaluate those requests and provide in-kind support to meet a need, such as if a family was on the verge of having their electricity cut off, if a family needed psychological support, um, or if a family needed help with food through grocery store gift cards, and we were able to provide that. That's amazing. Um, and that's incredible that you were able to not only pivot um, or continue a lot of the services that a Global Voice was already doing, but be able to develop that app and to make it so culturally specific that it was helpful um, and could be used as well. I want to talk a little bit about um, your book that will be published in summer of 2021. So can you describe a bit more about what the book is about, um, why you decided to write it, um, and, and what your, your goal is in having people read it? Yes, of course. And it really, it still doesn't feel real that it's going to be published in August of 2021. I 
there's so much work left to do, but I'm very motivated to do it. Um, so my book tells the story of two Syrian families, and it's actually based on a true story. These families lived across the street from each other in Syria before the war and had many things in common. In the real version of the story, they even had three daughters with the same names. And as they would both tell it, had the war not happened, their lives likely would have remained more or less the same. However, when the war started, their lives diverged drastically. Um, one of the families had their home bombed. Their mother was killed. Two of the daughters had life-threatening injuries, one of whom the doctor said she only had a 3% chance of survival. And as she tells the story, she held on to her life because she had been fighting with her mother in the moments when the bomb went off and she couldn't bear having her last words with her mother having been angry. She made it through the night in the hospital, woke up the next morning only to find out that her mother was dead. From there, that family ended up going to Jordan for medical treatment while their neighbors across the street, this other family, ended up seeing this bombing as the sign that it was time for them to leave as well. But when both families ended up in Jordan, their lives couldn't have diverged more drastically. And in my book, in a fictionalized account, I'm working to tell those stories. There's so many reasons that I'm motivated to do this, but I think the main reason is that every day I see people living their lives as refugees being dehumanized, whether that's in the media or casual conversation or by the employees at humanitarian organizations. There's this idea that a refugee identity is one dimensional. This idea that once a person is a refugee, the rest of their identity disappears and ceases to matter. This manifests in two ways. Sometimes it becomes the, the brave and noble refugee who can do no wrong and has survived everything that they've gone through, who is put on a pedestal for their strength. And other times it's this identity that we've seen particularly in US politics over the last four years of the refugee who is a criminal and an infiltrator and someone who wants to destabilize a society. Well, on the surface, one of these things looks more problematic than the other. Both are in fact equally dehumanizing. Both of these characterizations strip people of their identity and of the multiple facets of what it takes to be a human. We would never do this to our friends. We would never do this to our neighbors. And yet, as soon as someone is a refugee, we cease to see them as a three-dimensional person. And in my book, that's one thing that I really want to address by telling these families' stories and doing so through the lens of a foreign narrator, since I am not Syrian and I never will be, and I can never truly understand that experience from a Syrian perspective. I can only understand it from my own. But I hope that by telling these stories, it will really call into question the way we conceive of refugees in society, as well as the actions that we take, both within our humanitarian and international legal systems, that often have the effect of denying people their agency in ways that can do so much more harm than good. Um, so I'm curious now, given your breadth of experience and depth of experience working with The Global Voice and now this book, um, which touches on similar issues, but more broadly, the refugee experience, how does your experience working for A Global Voice inform your ability to write this book? And how do you think it's shaped the way that you understand issues of migration and, and refugees? 
One of the best things about working for a Global Voice for Autism has been the opportunity to engage with communities on a level that I don't think would have ever been possible in any other kind of humanitarian work. Um, over most of the past eight years, I have lived and interacted and spent time with the communities that we've served. As a result, I've been able to form personal connections with people um, and truly develop a level of understanding of their stories um, and what they've experienced in a way that I don't think would have otherwise been possible. Um, and many of those stories um, are to credit for this experience writing this book. Although neither of the families whose stories are featured in the book directly went through Global Voice for Autism's programs, it's that work through Global Voice for Autism that led me to meet both of these families. And that work with the Global Voice for Autism has also really shown me the wide range of challenges that individuals face when they're living as refugees, but more than that, the systemic issues that underlie all of that. And as I move forward with my career, as I look to continue to make an impact to improve the lives of people who are refugees, migrants, living in conflict-affected communities, I think my Global Voice work will serve as an important basis, but has also really inspired me to take a more advocacy-oriented approach to the work that I do to try and address some of these systemic issues because we can provide humanitarian support all day. We can build community capacity all day. We can teach a family to support their child with a developmental disability. But if the system is one where that child can't go to school, if the system is one where that family is limited and can't get resettled because a distant relative committed a crime somewhere um, and that's now holding them back, there's only so much we can do to make a true difference. If you give somebody financial support, but then they surpass that threshold of vulnerability and fall back into a cycle of poverty, that's not something sustainable. And so as I move forward, I really want to focus on building sustainable solutions and changing policies in a way that will create a world that is more inclusive of refugees and that really acknowledges individual humanity rather than lumping people into these categories and making decisions for people based on the category into which they fall. For people that are unfamiliar with the way that humanitarian organizations work, as well as the way that these systemic issues can be addressed in pursuing solutions for the problems that you've identified systemically, who are the stakeholders at play that would need to be incorporated in order to begin the process of addressing um, the aforementioned challenges that you described? There are, there are so many stakeholders, uh, but I think the three primary stakeholders that I'll highlight are governments. Governments ultimately determine how countries are going to receive refugees. And so having them as part of that conversation is instrumental if we want to shift these policies and shift these systems. Additionally, these international humanitarian organizations need to be part of that discussion um, in order to challenge how programming is administered, how programming is measured, and how funding is accepted to implement that programming. And finally, donor organizations need to be engaged in order to really challenge them to reconsider how they allocate funding and the conditions that are placed on such funding to ensure that it can truly respond to the needs of the people they're aiming to serve rather than respond to their personal interests in a way that might not actually successfully meet those needs. Thank you so much, Melissa, for taking the time to talk with me today. If you're interested in pre-ordering her book, the space between you and me. 
You can do so through the links in the show notes. To keep human rights close to your home, you're listening to The Rights Pod.